Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North, the Andrew Lawton Show on this Wednesday, October 25th. You're kind of at the midway point just after lunchtime on, well, in East, uh, Eastern time anyway, in the middle of the week. So hopefully you are surviving. It's all downhill. I Actually, I never know because this is like a weird tangent, but all downhill sounds like a bad thing, but it also sounds like it's meant to be easier. So it's all improving. From here, we'll just abandon the Jack and Jill like hill analogies anyway. Uh, it is just after one o'clock Eastern time. I promised yesterday I'd give a, a little bit of tribute to our Atlantic listeners. So if you are in the beautiful Maritimes, it's just after two o'clock Eastern, or in Newfoundland, it is 2.30 for you. Can't forget those half-hour time zones. We are going to be doing a bit of a deep dive into the pandemic era, which uh, for the most part, I think, has left us behind or we've left behind, depending on uh, which type of person you are, though not entirely. Not entirely. It's amazing if you look around, especially at a lot of these pro-Hamas protests, at the number of people that still want to keep their masks on. We uh, at True North Nation were like going to jokingly have a sign up at the door that said everyone needs to wear an N95 to be admitted. But we were worried that uh, someone might not get the joke and the whole place would be just like met with protests. And we didn't want to like be the ground zero of some new Freedom Convoy 2.0 or 3.0. So uh, we didn't do the mask gag. Thankfully, there were no masks in sight. We had a, a bit of normalcy. You had the misfortune, if you were there, of having to see my face in full. But we do have still very much hanging over us this threat that these things could be reimposed at any given time, that some other winter virus comes along and governments panic and all of a sudden we're right back into vaccine mandates and vaccine passports and mask mandates and all of the like once again. So it is encouraging, perhaps symbolic, but still important, I think, that the federal government has to make a decision on whether or not it will support a private member's bill by Conservative MP Dean Allison and supported by party leader Pierre Polyev to ban federal mandates. The bill is C-278, and yesterday it came up before the House of Commons and I believe is going to be voted on today as well. But uh, on this bill, it's basically the federal parliament demand that governments ban federal vaccine mandates. So before you do what all these people on the left love to do and say, oh, but mandates are provincial, this is talking about the mandates which are federal. The mandates surrounding the public service, surrounding air and rail travel, surrounding truckers and crossing the border, that's what this bill would prohibit. Now, obviously, it's not a constitutional amendment, which means theoretically, just as Parliament could pass this law banning it, Parliament could repeal that law or temporarily suspend the law in the future. But it would force any future government to have to go through an additional step, which is why even if it is symbolic and theoretical at this point, it is still, I believe, important because it's parliamentarians saying we do not believe government should ever have this power or authority again. Pierre Polyev spoke in support of this private member's bill yesterday. Take a look. Before the Prime Minister proceeds once again to maliciously divide and attack, let us let me remind him that the position put forward in this bill is now the position not only of common sense conservatives, but it is also the position of the majority of provincial governments of the Liberal member for Louis 
Saint uh, Louis Hubert of the Military Review Complaints Commission, the tribunal responsible for hearing grievances from members of the armed forces. And I will remind the position of the Prime Minister that the position reflected in the bill is now his position. Now you might under, uh, question why I would say that. And the reason is that he had the temerity to go on television about three months ago and claim he had never forced anyone to get vaccinated. That he claims that it should be a matter of personal choice. He wanted us all to forget the way he divided and insulted and name-called millions of people right across this country, patriotic, law-abiding, decent people. So if he really believes he never forced mandates on anyone, surely he'll be happy to vote for this bill to ensure that those mandates don't apply anymore and will never be reimposed again. How do you like them apples, as I believe the common political parlance dictates now? Yes, if Justin Trudeau is so eager to say he's never divided Canadians, he's never forced anyone to get vaccinated. No, no, I've always viewed it as being a matter of personal choice. He said that with a straight face, believe it or not then, well, let's just go the whole distance here and commit to banning this type of legislation in the future. But this is not what Justin Trudeau wants to do. The federal government has embraced one of the largest and most institutionalized forms of gaslighting I've ever seen in the wake of COVID. All of the things that they did, that they did aggressively, that they did openly, brazenly, they're pretending they never did. Oh, I never insulted the unvaccinated, Justin Trudeau said before the Public Order Emergency Commission. I never called anyone racist and misogynistic and white supremacist, except for that time that I called the unvaccinated racist, misogynist, white supremacist. Oh, I never forced anyone to get vaccinated, except for when I yelled enthusiastically at a campaign rally in Calgary that you may have a right sort of-ish to not be vaccinated, but you can't like get on a plane. You, you can't get on a train. You can't, you know, risk other people. And it's almost as though they were trying to carve themselves a bit of an out there to say, well, yes, you have the choice. But if you make that choice, you can't work, you can't travel, you can't go see grandma, you can't do this. Is that really a choice? Hell no, it's not. And that is exactly what the government wants you to believe, that when they stripped away all of these abilities you had, as a free individual in Canada, if you are not vaccinated, when you strip that all away, then you don't actually have the right to live your life anymore. And they're trying to tell you that this was all just a free choice. Imagine if, and I, I've made this comparison before, in the last six years, we've had a bit of a renaissance and discussions about sexual consent. And you see the Me Too movement, campus advocacy, all of that. And people have reevaluated. And the one thing that we are all told about consent is that it must be clear, unequivocal, and enthusiastic. Co co coercion is not consent. And that is exactly the line that we are all told, I think understandably so when it comes to sexual consent. But with vaccination, we're told that coercion is entirely legitimate. Coerced consent is consent in the eyes of the government. 
Now, we look at the facts of the situation here, and I'll talk about this a bit more later with Christine Van Gein and Joanna Barron, who have a fabulous book out about the pandemic era. But one of the interesting details is that it didn't work. So all of these vaccine mandates and restrictions that were done to get the vaccination rate up uh, a slight bit because it was already at close to 90% didn't actually amount to a hill of beans. Uh, this came out this week where COVID passports in Quebec and Ontario did not convince more than a few people to get vaccinated. This is a peer-reviewed study, such as it is, that looks at the effect that vaccine passports in those two provinces had on overall vaccination rates. And it found that it affected, it affected 0.9% in Quebec. 0.9% and in Ontario, 0.7%. So let's just split the difference here. Less than 1%, 0.8% of vaccination was affected by vaccine passports. Now, I would argue this is not a failure of government policy because the policy government officials knew was not going to increase vaccination. It was meant to punish the unvaccinated. It was meant to say you have been non-compliant with government edicts, therefore you don't have the right to go to a movie theater, go to a restaurant, or in Quebec's case to even go shopping at a big box store. One of many infringements on civil liberties that we'll talk about with Christine and Joanna very shortly. But I, I want to pivot to another topic here. If you've been following TNC.news this week, you'll no doubt have seen two really great stories with a third to come in just a couple of hours from my colleague Noah Jarvis, who has written about this little-known federal crown corporation called the Sustainable Development Technology Canada. Now, this is a group which is by design tasked to distribute tons of taxpayer money for innovation and development and clean technology and all of that. And you may think, okay, whatever, government spends billions on this stuff. Well, this Crown Corporation has been given a huge amount of money with very little oversight over how it's spent. The government actually suspended its funding to this organization a little while back when a report found that there was a lot of mismanagement, conflict of interest, and all of that. Now, uh, my colleague Noah has got the receipts, as they say, and found even more than was in the report, and he joins me now. Noah, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me on, Andrew. So, I mean, this was you and I were, were chatting about this when you were working on the stories, and it sounded like this just started out as something that was in one way kind of a standard story. And the more you learned, the more you realized just how insane what was happening was. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we were sent a tip from, uh, through the email, and basically we were sent this report from SDTC um, that basically showed that the the SDTC has a just a culture, a corporate culture of corporate mismanagement, uh, funding companies in which board members have conflicts of interest in and trying to hide these conflicts of interest, whether that be through firing employees who would speak up about this, or whether that be through um, the president backdating documents um, to, you know, cover up the fact that uh, she was working with people uh, and funding companies in which there's a conflict of interest. Uh, it's it's quite concerning that board members of this uh, Crown Corporation uh, who are responsible for distributing hundreds of millions of dollars annually of taxpayer dollars are possibly distributing money to which they have uh, personal uh, financial vested interests and perhaps even distributing money to their uh, friends and colleagues. 
Yeah, and your first story on this subject really just listed like board member by board board member all of these companies they're involved in that have received in in some cases tens of millions of dollars from SDCC from Sustainable Development Technology Canada. And what I found interesting about looking through that it, we don't know. I mean, they have a conflict of interest policy and in that theoretically these people could have recused themselves from those individual votes. But the report that was done, uh, as you shared with me, was that like a lot of the time they weren't even following the conflict of interest policy. Right. And the only reason why this report was done was because uh, whistleblowers from SDTC, uh, about a dozen or so uh, current and former employees, were sick and tired of the corporate mismanagement. And they asked ISED, which is the ministry responsible for administering uh, SDTC. And they just asked to interject, to that's led by Francois-Philippe Champagne. That's correct. Um, they asked ISCD to uh, do a report and an investigation on this. They took about six months uh, to do the investigation and they found that, uh, yes, uh, SDTC, they have a culture of uh, funding companies in which there are conflicts of interest with board members. Uh, board members seldom recuse themselves from votes in which uh, they are funding companies in which they have conflicts of interest. Uh, the report also found that there is very little, if any, dissension, uh, dissent within uh, the board um, of all of the votes for funding companies were done unanimously. There was very little evidence of vote mixing. And uh, the report notes that uh, this is very concerning because the clean tech industry or whatever you want to call it uh, is a very small industry. And you know, there's a lot of people who know each other. Uh, and thus it makes it very important that there is a strong conflict of interest policy there. And not only does uh, is there a very weak conflict of interest policy, this conflict of interest policy was seldom followed. Yeah, and even with this report, SDTC has been pretty unrepentant, it looks like. They, they've basically told the government to go pound salt and said, we've done nothing wrong. Exactly. I reached out for them for comment and basically SDTC said, oh, there's nothing to see here. You know, there's no wrongdoing. They put out a press release a day after uh, Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne uh, announced that they would be cutting funding to SDTC um, until December 31st. They put out a press statement saying we don't need an investigation on this matter. Everything's completely fine. Nothing to see here. Uh, yeah, it's always great when someone says we, we don't even need to investigate. We're that confident. That there's no don't even look. No, no, no. Please, please, please don't look. Exactly. And it's concerning that Francois-Philippe Champagne is basically entrusting the people implicated in this report. They're trusting the board members and the executives to carry out these reforms to SDTC uh, for, for their conflict of interest policy. When these are the people that have been funding, you know, their, their friends and, you know, companies in which they're personally invested in. Uh, one example I want to point out, too, is a board member who served on uh, the SDTC board for six years between 2015 and 2021, Andre Liz Method. Uh, she is the head of a venture capital firm. And if you go on their website, this is all public information, you go on their website, uh, seven out of the 25 companies that uh, Cycle Capital is invested in, they have received money from SDTC, uh, millions of dollars from SDTC while she served on the board. Uh, Enerchem, for example, uh, she also sits on the board of Enerchem. They received $12 million in 2016 while she sat on their board and the SDTC board. And Andre Lee's method uh, also sat on the project review committee which reviews the, the companies in which they plan on uh, funding before it actually goes to a vote before the board. So uh, she has a lot of power uh, within uh, SDTC, uh, as well as many other board members who also sat on the project review committee.
Now, I, just to, to give people the benefit of the doubt here, and I know you reached out to this woman for your story, and as I understand it, she didn't respond, but to, to give them the benefit of the doubt, if it is a small space, and you know there aren't that many players in the space, and obviously people might know each other, and uh, they try to be diligent and recuse themselves, were you able to look into the meeting records and see if each individual member recused themselves on these things where there was a, a conflict or a potential conflict? I personally wasn't able to go look into their meeting records, but uh, like because Chabot, they're not public, is that they're not the... public? But Ray, oh, wow. Raymond Chabot, uh, Grant Thornton, uh, they did an investigation and they got you know those internal uh, internal access uh, to the documents and the meeting uh, notes, and their report basically outlines that you know from looking at the meeting minutes. Do, like rarely, if ever, do they even talk about uh, potential conflicts of interest, and you know, rarely, if ever, do board members recuse themselves uh, from these meetings. You know, don't take my word for it. Take the people that the government uh, hired to investigate the matter. So you said that the funding suspension from the federal government goes until the end of this year. Do you have any ind indication at this point of what what's going to happen come January first? Uh, I mean, the government is entrusting these. The board members and executives implicated in the report to do these reforms. And I guess if Francois-Philippe Champagne feels as if uh, SDTC has made enough uh, steps into correcting their their uh, corporate mismanagement, quite frankly, uh, if, if he feels as if you know they've taken enough corrective measures, they'll probably restore funding. Uh, but it's quite concerning because uh, this SDTC is responsible for distributing hundreds of millions of dollars annually. I think in 2021 or 2022, they distributed $140 million worth of taxpayer dollars. And the report basically notes that about 20% of the projects that they looked into, so it's more than 20%, but I'm being generous, about 20% of the projects that they looked into, uh, board members and executives have conflicts of interest with these companies. So if you extrapolate 20% uh, out to $140 million, that's tens of millions of dollars annually uh, in which companies are being uh, more money is being given to companies in which these board members have personal and financial connections to um but you know as, as i stated you know that these same board members and executives are being entrusted uh to mm -hmm. enact these reforms and it would be very disappointing if francois decides to uh reinstate their funding without any serious personnel change on the board and the executive of that uh, fsdtc yeah, self-investigations are rarely, if ever, uh, appropriate for uh, correcting wrongdoing. Well, you've done great work on this. I know you have a third part coming out in just a few hours, so people can head on over to tnc.news. Noah Jarvis, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. All right. To get back to the COVID file here, I mentioned earlier on in the program the uh, issues we were having with uh, trying to have some level of accountability for what the federal government did over the COVID era. And I mentioned that bill that Pierre Polyev and the Conservatives have uh, gotten behind, Dean Allison's private member's bill. And this is a bill. Uh, Dean Allison just like retweeted me one second ago. So I, I, was, I didn't know if he was listening to the show. Uh, but he was retweeting me in my comment about uh, what I was just about to bring up here. The liberals are displeased that anyone is trying to muck around on their record. Uh, we saw one tweet from Seamus O'Regan, which accused Pierre Polyev of wasting time. Pierre Polyev tabled a bill to ban vaccine mandates. Today, we have to waste time debating it. Oh, yes, heaven forbid you have to debate legislation and policy. 
That's what Polyev wants to talk about right now. Not affordability, not inflation, not housing, not what's happening in Europe or the Middle East, vaccine mandates. Well, uh, my comment to Mr. O'Regan was that perhaps he wouldn't need to waste time debating your government's egregious violation of civil liberties if you didn't egregiously violate people's civil liberties. And then Mark Gerritsen uh, decided to weigh in with his own comment on this to the same uh, sort of effect there. The anti-vax club, that's what Polyev is talking about right now. Not affordability, not inflation, not housing, not the war in Europe or the Middle East, vaccine mandates. Did, did that sound similar to the other tweet? It's almost as though they just got like a fresh batch of talking points sent down the pipeline from the PMO and they're all just copying and pasting. Now, uh, if Pierre Polyev were truly debating something irrelevant in the House of Commons, he would be debating Mark Gerritsen. But that is not what was happening. He was talking about vaccine mandates, which affected millions of Canadians and not only the individual people, but affected the core civil liberties and right to make individual medical choices that all Canadians enjoy. When you attack the freedoms of one Canadian, you attack the freedoms of all Canadians. And it is noteworthy that the Liberals do not want any real scrutiny of their record, that they don't want to rehash this, that you see the government uh, so fervently uh, telling everyone when there are court cases up that, oh, we need to dismiss this, it's moot, we can't talk about this, we don't need this because they don't actually want people going back to that three-year period of 2020 to 2023, really, and seeing the extent to which these policies did break the law, did violate people's rights. They don't actually want to have that discussion. And it's kind of interesting. There was that call from, I believe, Emily Oster is her name, a writer last year for pandemic amnesty, which was basically, yeah, we all said some things. We all did some things. You know, it sucks, but it was a difficult time. Let's all just move on. Let's just, you know, let bygones be bygones. And it's a lot easier for the people who were responsible for some of the violations of people's rights to call for pandemic amnesty. It's in fact, it's very similar to Hamas attacking Israel and then calling for a ceasefire as if to say, okay, we hit you. Now we, we just want to stop. We just want to get rid of this all. But that's kind of what's happening here. The people that are calling for us to move on and never look at this again are the people that were very directly involved in the reasons we should look into this period. Joanna Barron is the executive director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation. Her colleague, Christine Van Gyne, is the CCF's litigation director. The two have a fascinating piece in C2C Journal about this and an even more fascinating book that is coming out in the next few days here called Pandemic Panic, How Canadian Government Responses to COVID-19 Changed Civil Liberties Forever. They don't want to move on from this without a deep dive into all that went wrong and perhaps uh, setting out a roadmap for how to avoid this in the future. Christine and Joanna, wonderful to talk to you. Thanks so much for coming on today. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Thanks for having us on. 
I, I mentioned a, a couple of moments ago in court cases where these restrictions are coming up, we're often hearing from the government's lawyers these appeals to mootness. It was kind of this just little moment. It was almost like the twilight zone. It's not really where we are now. So there's no point in dealing with this. They've had some success on that, notably in the travel vaccine mandate case, although it stands to reason what's happening with the federal court of appeal there. But, but let me just ask you on that. Why is it important to not just let this er this era be put in a box and stowed away on some back shelf? Well, I don't think that you've seen in recent memory an extraordinary, you know, areas of life, just an extraordinary array of areas of life that we never imagined the government could start regulating in health, our social lives, our religious lives, our expressive lives, pretty much you name it. And if we can't go and see how our judiciary, how our politicians even, because politicians ideally should use the charter as a sort of guardrails for their behavior, um, if we can't have an honest accounting of how we fared at this stress test, we are certain to see other public health emergencies, pandemics, who knows what other nature of thing in the future um, that will affect all of those domains of life. And we're doomed to repeat it. So as you rightly noted, we opened this book by being sort of against the pandemic amnesty. No, we, we can't have amnesia about all these things that happened. I'll ask you about this, Christine, as well, because one of the challenges here is that there's a legal aspect. And I know you're approaching this book as two lawyers and, and a lot of your advocacy on these issues has been through the legal lens. There's also the political aspect and the cultural and the media aspect. And I'm curious how much you think this is really a legal question versus a, a political question. Well, it's a legal question because a lot of these issues were addressed by the courts. But I think there's also a political question as well, and also a cultural one. And one of the things that we noticed in writing this book was how the culture around civil liberties seems to have shifted really dramatically. I think that there became this pendulum swing towards expediency and towards deference among the members of the public to government decisions that didn't quite exist before. I think we were more skeptical of state power before the pandemic. And, and during the pandemic, it seemed like there was only one way that you could think about government restrictions, and it was to wholeheartedly celebrate them, even when they violated some of our most fundamental tenets of our constitution. Um, these things are all interconnected, right? The, the politics, the culture, and the court decisions that come out of it. And it kind of operates in a cycle. And now we have a number of pretty terrible precedents legally where courts evaded judicial scrutiny of rights violations through procedural reasons. Mootness is one example that you mm -hmm. gave, and we dealt with mootness a lot. Uh, another example is standing. There were, there were cases where uh, cases were dismissed for lack of standing. And the really important and novel questions about our rights in a, the, the context of a unprecedented crisis were never resolved. And if we don't resolve those issues from the courts, we don't have good precedent to protect ourselves against intrusions in the future. We, we don't have everything resolved, right? We're still waiting for some decisions. We had to, we had to put the book out at some point. Uh, I actually just received my copy this afternoon. Uh, was happy to see your endorsement on the back there, Andrew. <laughs> oh, I'm happy it made it to it. I, I'm glad it was useful. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's, it's, it, 
it, it, not everything is resolved. In particular, we're waiting for the result in the Emergencies Act invocation judicial review, which we had brought. And we're expecting that maybe in the next few months. Let me actually ask you, uh, I'll start with you, Joanna, but if you want to bring in bring in your own perspective, Christine, please do, about the Emergencies Act, because some of the government's arguments on trying to dismiss these uh, challenges have been insane. And, and one of them, I'm, I'm crudely paraphrasing here, is basically, well, this was a, a once-in-a-lifetime uh, fact pattern, so therefore, you know, there's no point in really, you know, having it out, because the next time the Emergencies Act is brought in, it's going to be under different circumstances. And, and that's a really dangerous dangerous argument because every case has its own unique facts. And the point of precedent is not that you have a one size fits all solution, but certainly you start defining this. So the fact that this uh, never before used legislation, the Emergencies Act came in, we've never had judicial guidance on how to use it. And the government doesn't want that it is incredibly concerning. Have I, have I misrepresented anything there, Joanna? No, certainly not. And I would add that in addition to the government pointing to the so-called unprecedented nature of the Freedom Convoy, as you say, it's not clear to me that there couldn't be some other type of emergency. We have climate mm -hmm. issues. We have global security issues. The world is a dynamic and changing place. But the important thing to add, even beyond speculation, is that at the hearings, both at the Public Order Emergency Commission hearings, as well as the judicial review hearings, the government very specifically and very stridently, I would say, pushed an interpretation of the application for the Emergencies Act, which would give them very wide ambit to act. So specifically in the Emergencies Act, which defines threats to the security of Canada in a way that's linked to the CSIS Act, and that thus you know, relies on a CSIS assessment, an independent assessment, specifically um, to avoid concentrating too much power in the hands of the executive, <laughs> We heard the prime minister himself directly say that his interpretation, his government's interpretation of that was that he could declare a state of emergency throughout Canada based on his understanding of threats to the security of Canada mm -hmm. as the governor and council, independent from any external threat assessment. And at both hearings, he declined to provide any type of legal brief, legal memo, let alone external threat assessment, which we know from the testimony of Jody Thomas was never provided. So actually, if that standard rules the day, uh, Justice Rouleau seemed to accept that. And we know that the federal government, which is going to be bringing forward uh, proposals for amendments to the Emergencies Act, they're going to seek to um, separate out the, the CSIS Act definition so that basically the prime minister can decide when an emergency exists, um, that would make it even more common that something like the Emergencies Act could be invoked again. And perhaps Christine will talk a little bit mm -hmm. about what that actually meant throughout all of Canada, not just Ottawa. Yeah, it is important to remember that when the Emergencies Act was invoked, it wasn't geographically limited. The, the prime minister had said, this is uh, this is short, this is limited and temporary, but it, it was not limited. It applied across the country, even though by the time it was invoked, the, the protests were only taking place in Ottawa. Literally, quite literally, as the Emergencies Act was being invoked, the police were in the process of clearing the border blockades at Coots and the blockades at the other border locations had already been cleared. I think one of the interesting things that um, the book does, though, 
is it looks at this from a approach of constitutionalism and and it places a premium on the values of the rule of law and look we're we're not here to cheerlead the convoy i think that the convoy accomplished the political goals that it set out to accomplish but certainly there were aspects of that protest that were illegal and we have a whole chapter in the book about the rule of law and the value of the rule of law and we, we hold the, the federal government to the standard of the rule of law. They can't invoke legislation when the legal threshold to invoke is not met. Uh, they don't have this extraordinary power unless they're authorized by law. But on the same hand, we need to hold members of the public who participated in the convoy to the standards of the rule of law as well. And certainly there were illegal acts that took place. People should face criminal charges related to those criminal acts. And certainly a protest cannot go on indefinitely. It, the, by, the, by the end, um, the police were certainly entitled to exercise ordinary police powers to move large vehicles off of streets, um, not to permanently block a protest from proceeding. I think there's no question you can protest on the lawn of Parliament Hill, but you certainly can't indefinitely block uh, Ontario highways. There's, there's provisions of the the criminal code that addressed that though. And there was no need to resort to uh, the use of the Emergencies Act. So I think that that's one of the things that is is going to challenge readers in our book is whatever your perspective on this, uh, on, on all of these issues, on COVID, on the Emergencies Act, I think you need to be prepared to have that perspective challenged because these things are not straightforward. Whatever the mainstream media might say, this is not a black and white issue. These issues are complex. And that's why we required an entire book that took us years to write to go through all of this. So I, I encourage anyone who reads the book to read it with a very open mind um, because we really have spent a lot of time trying to get the balance right on all of these issues. Well, one of the things that you have both done in this, which I, I was very grateful for, is you, you've gone right back to the beginning, because I think when the convoy and the Emergencies Act came in, we're, we're talking about now more than two years after the onset of, of some of the earlier COVID restrictions. And some of those early stories that almost sounded quaint in comparison of like, you know, oh, some kid, you know, given a, a citation for using a public basketball court. Or I remember there was one in Hamilton where a drug dealer was arrested for operating a non-essential business. Uh, as well as for dealing drugs, like some of these things, which almost became novelties. But uh, the reason they did is because the government response to COVID got more and more severe. At that point, we didn't know we'd be looking at church closures, pastors in jail, uh, family gatherings being, uh, in some cases, you know, raided by police. And all of these things you know, are, are too large to just say we, we can't look into. And I, I'm curious what your thoughts are on, on the procedural aspects here, because I know there have been a lot of these charges that were issued that have just been dropped because of judicial resourcing. You know, it's we don't have enough time to go through three years of fines. Courts are backed up. The problem with that, of course, is that uh, no one has had their day in court. The arguments and the precedents haven't been made. But for the individual people charged, it's a win. So how do you reconcile those two? I think we had one case that was like that we, that we talk about in the book, and it relates to an individual protester in Kingston. And, and you're so right. It's so quaint when you think back to it. It's, it's also surreal. So, so the facts of some of these stories, you know, like roping off the cherry blossoms. So one of the stories we talk about in this book is a case that we were working on at the Canadian Constitution Foundation. It involved a man 
uh, named Robert, who was frustrated as a gym user and a supporter of small business. A lot of his friends ran small businesses. He was frustrated with these sort of never ending lockdowns. I think we were on our third or fourth lockdown in Ontario. And he decided to go and protest. He wore a mask and he went by himself. He wanted to start his own pro protest uh, to, to say end the lockdowns. And he was charged under, I think it was the, at the time, the, the, uh, the stay-at-home order. And I mean, the idea that someone protesting or standing outside alone with a mask, expressing a political view poses some type of public health threat, it's just absurd. And so we wanted to use this as, um, as an opportunity to challenge the broader lockdown provisions. But it, I mean, in the best interest of Robert, the charges were dropped. So obviously that's the route that we need to, to proceed with. But the result of it procedurally is that you don't get a precedent. You don't get to challenge the broader, the broader law, which is really what the problem is here. Well, and you've also done something really interesting, Joanna. Instead of organizing it chronologically, which I think probably would have been my instinct as a writer, you've gone by basically sections of the charter and by by individual rights and and freedoms from you know freedom of assembly to uh, to freedom of movement, freedom of expression, all of these things. And you know, I think it's easy to just look in general in the abstract or in the you know amalgam and say you know rights were violated. But when you go through and point specifically to how and which rights. It's, it's a very powerful case. And, and let me ask you just on religion alone, because, you know, the government's defense of its uh, restrictions on on worship ceremonies and services was mm -hmm. that, well, you know, you have the right to, you know, be a Christian, you have the right to be a Jew, you have the right to be a Muslim, but, you know, th this is just extraordinary times. But for people of faith, that is the government telling them how their religion must be practiced. I, I mean, you look at with Judaism, which has very specific guidelines on the number of people that need to be a part of prayer, government was saying its edicts matter more than these things that we supposedly have a right to define ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. And we talk about in the book that, so for example, because of these you know unprecedented restrictions, it brought out some of the frailties in the law itself. So for example, freedom of subjective belief is extremely strongly protected in Canadian law, but freedom of assembly has much weaker protection and most of its protections are in the context of like labor union strikes and things like that. Um, and so it was quite jarring to religious, you know, religious Canadians that the government had gave such short shrift to the value of in-person worship. I was actually at a conference in the UK this past summer, and I was told that in London or in, in England at some point, um, gathering limits were set at five people. Uh, at least in Ontario, they were set to 10 people, perhaps in consultation with the Jewish community that would have let them know the minimum amount of people needed for a minion. Um, having that, that aside, there are churches in Canada that are important community hubs, for mm -hmm. particularly for new Canadians, um, which elderly Canadians rely on because, you know, participating by Zoom isn't an option for them. Um, and you really saw that the government was just happy to say, well, you can just log on to Zoom and, you know, and, you know, there's no violation to your religious freedom. The government actually um, contended in most cases and was countenanced by judges in many cases that these strict restriction and gathering limits didn't even engage the right to freedom of religion. And you can read about some of those, some mm -hmm. of those faith communities in the book. 
Yeah, and I I would also point out, I mean, at the early days, there was a much different attitude. Like I remember when the Ontario government was actually taking a bit of a, a bit of guidance from the Church of God in Aylmer, which was the first one to really try to make drive-in services a thing. And then you fast forward a few months and, you know, the government's having the doors locked and uh, putting millions of dollars of fines down. So and, that, and know, had people, was... police hiding in the bushes, observing the congregants. Yeah, and I actually had, uh, there was one report that was uh, handed over in Discovery in which I was named as a person of interest in the police's investigation of that because I had interviewed uh, the pastor and they were suspicious that I might attend the service. So they had like preemptively put me on this on the person of interest list, which was quite an honor. I had never uh, had that before. I would have preferred it to be about something I did rather than something someone thought I, I might have done. But that's the insanity here. And I, I wanted to, to bring up another dimension of this that, I had almost forgotten, and it was seeing you cite me that I remembered this, when the government of Ontario had tried to give a police the power to stop and question anyone who was outside their home about what they were doing. And, and you know, very gratefully, every police department in Ontario, except for the OPP, I think in the next couple of days said, we, we're not going to do this. But like that would have seemed insane if you had said in 2019 that that was uh, at all something a government would direct the police to do in a province. Yeah, you did some really great reporting on that. That's I think you were you were the person who was literally quite literally counting which police. Well, I was like cold calling them all. I spent my yeah. weekend doing that. Yeah, but great, great work, Andrew. Um, and, and it's very valuable. Um, and it's very important that we have a record of that. Uh, the reality is that police are the ones who need to interact with the community. And, you know, I, I, I'm generally skeptical of police power, but I know police as well. And I know that for the most part, police want to have a good relationship with their community and have worked hard to develop a relationship of trust with the communities where they are policing. And, and they are not interested generally in stopping mothers taking their children on a walk to a playground, which is what that stay-at-home order was going to do, combined with that police authority to stop people. And I'll point out that the the this police power to stop people and demand they identify themselves and explain why they're outside their house um, is very similar to a policy that was controversial in Ontario called carding, because uh, carding had resulted in a lot of police interactions with racialized communities in particular who are generally over-policed. And the government created a policy that they would no longer engage in carding. And there were constitutional concerns around that policy. And in fact, when, and, and it is so similar to what was announced and what was announced during the pandemic was actually more extreme than the carding policy that everyone sitting at that cabinet table would have known how similar this is to carding. And in fact, we know from reporting from, uh, it was from the CBC, they found, uh, they had spoken to someone who disclosed that in cabinet, the attorney general, the provincial attorney general had warned cabinet that this policy is likely unconstitutional. And cabinet and, and the premier Ford proceeded to enact it anyway. And I think that there's real concern that there's bad faith there. Uh, the bad faith is that they knowingly enacted an unconstitutional law and they did it because they wanted some short-term gain and they knew that any judicial um, oversight over that would not be heard in time before this temporary measure had 
been repealed and they would avoid any judicial scrutiny. And I think that that's bad faith and it's very, very concerning. I mean, there's some relief that the police said we will not enforce this, but it shouldn't just lay with the police to say mm -hmm. we won't be in enforcing unconstitutional laws. I'll go back to you, Joanna, just as we wind down here, because the subtitle of the book, How Canadian Government Responses to COVID-19 Changed Civil Liberties Forever, is a lofty one. And I, I know in your conclusion, you actually are uh, rather forward-looking about this. But I'll, I'll ask with a bit of trepidation, because I don't want to know the answer, as I think I know the answer, do you think these changes have been for the better or for the worse? And I'll just you know, add a bit of an asterisk there when, you know, all of the legal procedures have been exhausted, we have the definitive ruling, do you think that we will end up with fundamentally a less free country than we had going into COVID? I think we have a legal system that has shown how effectively it can obfuscate answering the question with the declarations of mootness, with the uh, def deference to government evidence, uh, we were talking to another interviewer who found it remarkable that a lot of these issues weren't dealt with under Section 1. So, yes, we can acknowledge there was a rights violation, but maybe under Section 1, which is um, the justification clause, maybe you can say in public health emergencies it was justified, but at least to acknowledge for the record that these were rights violations. So we really have seen all of the ways that judges were able to wiggle out of telling the truth. Now, I will sort of conclude my remarks on a more optimistic note, which maybe I'm a little bit more of an optimist than Christine. I think it depends on us. I think it depends on the culture that we build. I think it depends on our collective understanding and our collective assessment of whether this was good enough, whether we think that if we have charter rights, which were you know agreed to democratically, whether they should mean something. Um, and if we understand the sort of fiasco that happened and will hold future governments accountable, just you know, out of sort of shock of how abysmally our, our you know, culture during the last pandemic failed. Um, I think that there could be hope, but it starts with, you know, looking in a sober way at how we actually fared. If I knew that you were the optimist of the two, I probably would have reversed this. So we get to end on Christine's dour note. But uh, Christine, I'll, or maybe you do have a less dour note, but I'll give you the last word on this. What's the, the forward looking takeaway you have after writing this? I'm pessimistic. I think not only did the courts do a terrible job protecting our rights, I think people have just shoved that memory away and forgotten it. And I think that I'm very concerned about whatever the next crisis is, we've now broken the glass on the Emergencies Act, it could be used again in the future, that our culture of civil liberties has been permanently damaged, because we've seen how easily people have come to justify huge intrusions into their rights. I think that we're in a very dark time uh, politically in our discourse where disagreement is not tolerated at all. I'm, I'm, I'm completely pessimistic and I'm, I'm very dark. I'm in a very dark place, Andrew. Uh, but you know, that's why you definitely should have ended with Joanna, but yeah. <laughs> well, I'll say, I'll say this to try to put a somewhat optimistic flavor on it is that you have to diagnose a problem to fix a problem. So uh, yeah. even taking the approach that you have, Christina, and that both of you have through this book, I think is essential to rectifying it because there is in, in a lot of cases, a, a political response available. And I, you know, I was mentioning earlier, the uh, private members bill in the house of commons today, again, may or may not pass, but uh, you know, if you have a, a change in government and a government is saying, you know, this should never happen. I will not do this. We could perhaps try to uh, 
normalize uh, civil liberties again. But I realize the courts will always remain a, a bit of a, a wild card there. Nonetheless, it is an incredibly, incredibly important book. I, I was very honored to uh, be able to write a, a small blurb for you and even more honored that uh, some of my work helped you put it together. It's called Pandemic Panic, How Canadian Government Responses to COVID-19 Changed Civil Liberties Forever. It's by Joanna Barron and Christine Van Gyne. And you can also read a, a bit of their work in C2C Journal this month as well uh, to get a bit of a sense of what the book holds. Uh, Joanna, Christine, thank you so much and well done with this. Thank you, Andrew. And the book's available on Amazon right now for anyone interested. All right. Wonderful. Yes. Do head over there. And last time we had an author on it, like spiked up in the numbers. So I'm hoping we can replicate that here. Go to Amazon and uh, check it out. Joanna, Christine, thanks very much. That does it for us for today. We will be back tomorrow with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. Thank you. God bless and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to the Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.